in the internet blood sport days, I've heard some wild shit being recorded. So. <laughs> I yeah, I can that. imagine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so I so guess. Uh, good, yeah. yeah, sorry, who, who am I talking about? <laughs> oh, uh, Trent Wallace, Sydney, Australia, checking in. So, so what's Australia like? What what is the cultural scene like there? I guess, or do um, you just not? Uh, or is that just not something you're into? Um, I mean, it's okay. Like, there's um, uh, I'm trying to think of like a good way of explaining it. Like, um, basically, it's like uh, very much intertwined with like class, you know. So, um, you know, like I used to have a poetry professor who told me that, you know, um, you know, black people have never written anything of any worth and they never will, you know. Uh, so it's like, you know, um, very, like, classist in that way. Like, I went to very classist in that way. Um, so, like, when I go to, like, events, like, poetry reading events, um, you know, it's like I'm the, I'm the odd man out, you know. And, uh, like, they don't really want to be reminded of, uh, you know, um, of, like, the inequality, like, because most of my poetry is about, you know, just, like, I mean, I wrote one that went off on Paint Bucket about, you know, getting headbutted in the head, you know? Uh, so, like, when you read that sort of poetry at one of these events, it's, like, you know, shock horror, you know, like, you've broken the, um, uh, like, the civility code, you know? So that's pretty much what it is, like, um, you're either independently wealthy and that's why you're writing or you're so like poor and you know having trouble getting employment doesn't matter if you write you know <laughs> if that makes sense yeah it reminds me of what carl said about a lot of the the poetry scene it's just so many of them are, are liberals and they're more afraid of you ruining the party than anything else right yeah yeah exactly yeah so it's pretty much here as well um yeah, Carl said a lot of stuff that, you know, sounded very familiar actually. So Like do you but get a do you get a lot of like American culture over there then? Um yes and no, like uh it depends on where you're from. Like um you know, so like in the sort of like middle class suburbs, they're very Australian. Like, um, you know, I have friends who date people from like higher up in the class like sort of structure. Um, you know, they like Australian bands, you know, um, stuff like, you know, Wolf, Wolf Mother, um, you know, what was the other band, like the Jets or something, uh, stuff like that, you know, um, but like where I grew up, everyone was in love with Tupac, you know, so, uh, yeah, it's, I, I think there's like a disconnect between the, um, you know, like the kind of poorer end, they dabble in more like black culture, I guess, like American black culture. Um, and then as you go up, they like, yeah, as you go up into the middle class, they, they're more focused on Australian culture, you know? Um, I think they're trying to manufacture their own class is kind of what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Um, or I should say they're manufacturing Australian culture at the middle and upper middle class levels. Right, right, yeah. Um yeah, because, like, there's a show called, like, Married at First Sight, <laughs> um, which is, like, a, I don't know, I don't know if it started in America, but it's, like, a reality TV show where, basically, they put two people together and marry them, and then, like, oh, go live your life, you know? Um, 
but like that's very much um you know something that middle class people really love you know but when i watch that show it's like so alienating because it's like you know um yeah like just these people just lead these lives that you know you don't relate to no i know what you mean that's uh that's a lot of american tv too it's uh like i mean that's that's essentially what was wrong with the tv show girls it's like who's actually living that life but i guess too i wanted to talk about you mentioned uh a poetry professor and your school i just wanted to ask too about like australian schools i feel like Mm -hmm. americans generally don't know about australian schools because it doesn't really there's not really that cultural penetration the way there is with like say british tv shows right that's interesting yeah so yeah so like how did how did you come to poetry and how did that like relate to school and what (laughs) um i mean that's a long story um yeah well this is a podcast (laughs) (laughs) right well i mean so it goes back to like um you know, uh, like when I when I was a kid, um, you know, Warhammer was like really popular. If you're familiar with Warhammer, yeah, the new one just came out, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I never had the money to play, but like I liked the books, you know. Um, and so like, um, yeah, one of my teachers uh, was like, "Oh, have you read like you know The Hobbit?" And I was like, "What the fuck?" You know. So he lent me his copy of The Hobbit and like the riddles in that was like the first time I ever saw poetry and I was like, what the fuck? Like, you know, so I always looked out for it like through, you know, um, for that type of stuff. Um, but I really didn't know like where to look and stuff like that. Because, um, yeah, I just didn't really like prose that much. Like I didn't write, I like reading books, you know, but these were like bite-sized things, you know, I guess. Um, you know, so, but, things went off the rails because like I dropped out of high school um I started hanging out with a crew um you know selling drugs uh break and entering that sort of thing so like that was like you know art was like the least thing on my mind at that time um you know and then uh I started like dating this girl who um you know she was like uh fairly um radical and just, like, through her influences, I was like, I got to change my life, you know. So I um, enrolled in, like, a vocational, like, here we got something called TAFE, which is, um, like, a vocational school. I don't know if you got those in America. Yeah, I th- we have vocational schools and, like, community colleges can sometimes fill that role, too, here. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, so this is, like, yeah, a community college, I guess. Um, you know, I got my, like, diploma and then... Um, because of, you know, um, so like in Australia, like there's this like box ticking exercise, right? So like you get government grants if you meet like, you know, so they ask you questions when you're like applying for university of like, oh, what's like the highest level that your parents ever made it for education, you know? Um, so I like, I like ticked all the boxes and I ended up getting a scholarship, um, you know, for one of the big three in Sydney. Um, you know, so yeah, and then while I was there, um, I originally wanted to do, like, literature as in, like, reading Frankenstein, stuff like that, um, but it was really, like, a, um, culture shock, because, like, I remember my very first, uh, like, the very first unit I took, English 101, they were doing, like, The Merchant of Venice, um, 
And then I was like, I went afterwards, I went to like the lecturer and I was like, I don't understand like this language because it was like, um, you know, Elizabethan, you know, uh, uh, like, yeah, like I, I just didn't know how to like read it and get into it. And he basically told me you either figure it out or you, you flunk out of this class, you know. Um, so that led me to um, go to like a study skill program. Uh, and the guy that, um, yeah, the guy that was like kind of helping me out there, like gave me a book of the sonnets by Shakespeare, um, you know. And then I was like, oh shit, this is like, you know, the shit in the Hobbit, you know. Uh, and so from there, I just started writing um, poetry, mainly because like by that time I had like started therapy, like. Um, we got a thing called victim services in Australia. So, like, if you've been a victim of, like, in my case, it was, like, you know, domestic violence. Um, but if you're, like, a victim of anything, you can get money or whatever, you know. Um, so, yeah, like, I ended up getting, like, therapy paid for by the government through that service. And, uh, you know, um, I started to, like, question, like, how did I get here? Like, why did the system like fail me so hard? You know, um, and uh, yeah, like the therapist was encouraging me to write journals because, like, you know, when you have PTSD, like half your memories are blocked out. If that makes sense, like, you know, you you don't really remember things very well, and then you'll all of a sudden you'll get like a very intense memory, you know, um, that kind of like sends you into like anxiety or something like that, you know. Um, so, yeah, like, he wanted me to start writing journals, and I was like, I don't want to write journals, like, you know, I mean, I just thought it was, like, I don't know, I thought it was, like, pretentious, you know, um, like, because I was basically, like, who am I, like, Samuel Pephas, you know, um, that sort of thing. So, yeah, um, so I started writing poetry instead, and that's how, yeah, that's how I ended up writing poetry. Oh, that's really cool. So a lot of, uh, it's big into your, uh, Australia's big into British lit then. Um, yeah, like, I'm just trying to think, um, yeah, like if you do like an undergrad course, um, you know, you'll do like, uh, you know, what's her, what's her name? Um, Mary Shelley's mother, Wollencroft, Wollencroft, um, and then you do like Marjorie Camp. Um, you'll do Yates. Yeah, so yeah, it's it's very British orientated, yeah. Yeah, and also you're you you also got into like leftist politics at this at this time. How did you uh come to that? To leftist politics. Uh so that yeah, it's another coincidence. Um yeah, um so I just started dating this girl, um, and she was involved in um the cross punk scene. Um I think you guys have a different name for that, right? Like Ogles or something? I'm really not sure. Yeah, like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, it's like kids I who do like know what you mean by crust punk. And... Yeah, I do know what you mean by crust punk. I think that right, might be right. something we understand in America because of British culture and TV. Yeah, so she was in, like, that scene. And, um, you know, through that scene, uh, she was doing food not bombs and i was like yeah i mean this is cool because at that point 
my brother, like, my brother was homeless since 13, like, he had a lot of problems and, like, ran away a lot, so, you know, when I was like, oh, this is this program that feeds the homeless, yeah, like, you know, I could get into that, um, you know, and then, because I was hanging around, like, you know, cross-punk sort of people, you know, you would go to, like, shows at, like, anarchist bookstores, and, you know, um, I just started reading, like, uh, Guy Debord was, like, a big one that I read first. Um, you know, uh, like, John Zerza, <laughs> uh, that sort of thing. Um, in, in like, the Primitivist, the Amprium sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so that's how I got into leftist politics, through, like, just the punk scene, the cross-punk scene. Um, and then, like, basically, I wasn't a fan of um, the way that they organized, you know, because it was very like, um, you know, it was very like, oh, we're going to like do like food not bombs. And it's like, um, you wouldn't get consistent people, you know, like you would get like two people one week, uh, four people the other week, you know. Um, so yeah, I sort of got into, um, I don't know what you call it, like Western Marxism, like, uh, the Italians, um, the French and stuff like that. Uh, and I really got into it because I wanted, like, more... I wanted to find people who were, like, interested in something more structured, I guess. Um, you know. Yeah, because, I mean, Food Not Bombs and the Crust Punks are usually very anarchist, and so you're looking for right. some of that more structured stuff. Yeah, yeah. Because, like, I mean, I'm pretty sure people... <laughs> Like people always say that anarchists love spontaneity, and it's it's definitely true. Like they don't really like to, um, you know, because like if you're like so like some of the issues like in Australia, um, like if there's like a housing, um, you know, like demolishing going on, like you need to get people going like every day. You know, like it needs to be, you know, you you have to like give the council like no other choice. You know. Um, and, you know, the anarchists just weren't that organized, I guess. Yeah, and then you eventually got, like... So, well, let me, let me back up. So, yeah, so it makes sense that, you know, you move from, like, the spontaneity of the anarchists to, like, the spontaneity of the situationists, I guess. It makes, like, you kind of moved into it from that direction, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, but then you kind of got into sociology. Yeah. Um, well, as I said, like, I was doing English, like, I was doing an undergrad in English. Uh, so, sorry, I should explain. The, like, the Australian system is an honor system. Um, so it's like England, if you're familiar with that. Um, so basically, you do a four-year, but you only do three, and then the fourth year is your honors. Um, you know, and then based on your honors work, you get, like, first, second, and third class. Um, so if you get like second class and third class, you then go on to do your masters. But if you get first class, you can go straight to do a, you know, in the PhD program. Um, so I was like still doing my undergrad in English, um, you know, having all these dreams of like reading for a living, and you know, <laughs> um, you know, like I, I used to think it was a big scam, you know, like people were gonna pay me to like read and then tell kids about books, you know. Um, but yeah, like, as I said, like, when I started getting into, like, therapy, the question became, like, how did I 
you know, how did I get to the place I'm at? And, uh, you know, I had already broken up with the third, you know, uh, with my girlfriend at that time, um, you know, but we were still hanging out. And uh, she invited uh, another friend, like another guy she was friends with. Um, and he was like doing his PhD in sociology. And uh, we started talking. And then he convinced me to, uh, you know, take a few classes, um, you know. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah, um, I think like that was my entry into sociology. But I think the big point, like the big defining point was when I read Bordeaux. Because Bordeaux's biography is like, he he was born in Bern, um, you know, and then he uh, he basically got a scholarship to go to the Normal Ecole or whatever it's called, um, like the Harvard of Paris, you know. And when he got there, he just like had a huge like culture shock. Um, you know, he spoke French with a Bernays accent. Um, you know, he wasn't as hip, uh, you know, as the Parisians and that sort of thing. And, like, that was my experience, like, to a T, you know. I came from, um, you know, the Australian version um, of the uh, of the ghetto. But, I mean, we call that housing commission, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, like, yeah, that was the big thing that got me into sociology was reading Bordeaux for the first time. And that, that, like, makes sense, too, like, with what you're talking about. You know, you're trying to, I guess, like, understand how your life came to be like in the broader social context so like moving from sort of the anarchist's praxis of you know doing the mutual aid and then into the situationists and into Bordeaux I guess makes a lot of sense if you're trying to figure out you know why your life is the way it is this is not really like um uh, doing it because like as much as weird as it would sound like you know, where I came from, there wasn't really much, like, economic, like, stuff to deal with, you know. Uh, and what I mean by that is, like, you know, it took me, like, a long time to, like, work this out. But I always used to hate, like, people saying they were working class because people would say, like, I'm working class. And they, like, their parents would, like, be paying off a mortgage, you know. And it's like, you know, like, that's not where I came from, you know, but then like, I had to figure it out. Like, you know, Marx calls it like the Lumpen proletariat. And, um, you know, so I, I kind of had to like find my own like sort of way because, you know, all the like communist groups on campus were like very much work, like engaging in workerism. And, uh, to someone who like comes from a spirit society below the proletariat, you know, I would like it was just like, you know, they weren't speaking to me, if that makes sense, you know. No, that makes a lot of sense because, I mean, this is in Marx, Marx's writing itself, but, you know, there's there's not much faith in the lumpen proletariat, as, as Marx calls it, uh, for any kind of revolutionary action. So it makes sense that those groups just, like, weren't speaking to you. Like, Baudrillard had this theory um, where you know, economic power is, like, that's, like, the uh, the hard power. You know, that's, like, the military force, you know. Um, if you want to, like, subdue people um, in society, you, like, you know, uh, as an example, um, you know, you would, like, increase, like, your um, police budget and militarize your police, you know, buy them all, like, tanks and shit, you know. Um, 
So like, and then you would have like that militarized police force then go occupy areas which you want to, to like to subdue, you know. But it was all like economic, right? Um, but then he he recognized that like you know for a lot of people they don't um, you know they don't they don't experience that kind of like economic um, force. Um, they face like little discriminations, like you know. If you speak with a certain accent, you're less likely to get the job, you know. Or, you know, if you dress a certain way, you're going to be less accepted in, um, you know, like in society. Like, I mean, when I, you know, when I used to, like, the way I used to dress, um, you know, like, I had, like, women jump, like, a few instances where I walk on the bus and then I'd be like, oh, that seat's open and I'd sit down. And out of my eye, I would see, like, women, like, tense up, you know, because the clothes I was wearing, you know, I was, like, signaling, like, you know, coming from those sort of areas, you know, where, so it was, like, you know, they're afraid I was going to rob them or something, you know, um, to, like, Vaudou's, like, kind of theories into, you know, cultural and social capital made a lot of sense to me, whereas the economic uh, sort of, like, workerism, you know, like, um, why the proletariat is like, you know, the center of the revolution, stuff like that. It just didn't make much sense to me because, you know, um, yeah, like it, it wasn't speaking to me. So yeah, like that's the main thing with Bordeaux. Like he was speaking to these little discriminations, I guess, that you uh, you experience, you know. Because um, I always say to people like, being lumpen is a lot like being elite because like in the elite, you have so much money, like, it, you, you don't care. Like, you, there's a meaninglessness that comes with your life, you know, because everything else in your life is um, already taken care of, you know. In a capitalist society, you know, what you, um, kind of like what you, uh, like, what you're told, like, gives meaning to your life is, like, have children, buy a house, you know, all that sort of stuff. So when you're elite and all that stuff's taken care of, like, what, meaning do you get out of that you know and the lumpen it's like you know money is so like not an issue because you don't have you know i don't know if this is making sense but like you're so poor that like money doesn't even come into your life you know (laughs) does that make sense no i i get what you're saying i guess i wanted to ask two uh kind of two related questions about what you said it's like um i guess like what are the police like in australia and what is like the like, I know Australia is a very racist society, and, you know, right now they have a lot of Islamophobia going on there. But, you know, like, what, is there, like, do they, does, like, the Australian media, like, stoke, like, anti-Indigenous sentiment or anti-Muslim sentiment, like, constantly in a way that, like, is, in a way that is kind of coded as, like, the police need to crack down on this? <laughs> uh, yeah, so, um, as with my life, I get into these situations through sheer coincidence. But so where I grew up, I grew up in a place called East Hills, which is on the west end of a place called Bankstown, which is a very notorious place in Sydney. Um, when I was growing up, it was a like Vietnamese gangs, Lebanese gangs were like fighting for turf wars, you know, sort of thing. Um, and so you ended up having like a lot of like Lebanese friends, you know, and most of their families were Shia who came over like after the Lebanese war. Um, 
the Civil War was in 92, I think, or it ended in 92. Um, yeah, and I should say, too, just real quick, there's, like, literally millions of Lebanese folks living in Australia. I don't know if American people know that. Yeah, yeah. We have a huge Lebanese community uh, in Australia, dysphoria. Um, yeah, so basically, like, um, in 2005, um, you know, tensions, like, spilled over. And, uh, you know, if you just Google 2005 Cronulla riots... Um, you know, Wikipedia will give you all the details, but basically it was like a race riot. Um, you know, like the Anglo-Australians were claiming that, um, you know, a guy got beat up by two Lebanese guys unprovoked, and the Lebanese guys were claiming that uh, the reason why they were, like, beating up the guy was because he grabbed a hijab off, uh, off a woman. Um, but anyway, yeah, it was a real bad, like, race riot. And um, the reason how it connects to my life is because I lived in Bankstown, and Bankstown being a big Lebanese community meant that, you know, you had all these, like, you know, uh, Anglo-Australians in cars, like, going around the, you know, the neighborhood um, looking for people to jump out on. Like vigilantes. Um, exactly, yeah, yeah. Uh, and bike clubs, like the Rebels got involved. Um, you know, but, uh, so there's a guy named John Laws, um, who I describe as like the Australian Rush Limbaugh. And, um, he went to court over, uh, stoking racial, uh, hatred. Um, and he was found, the courts found he, that he was guilty. Uh, he lost his, uh, uh, license, uh, for his role in, you know, orchestrating the Cronulla riot, um, you know, but his, uh, he was reinstated, like his license was reinstated, you know, uh, because he has a lot of friends in the Australian Liberal Party, which is a centre-right to far-right party, um, which may sound weird to Americans, but um, yeah, the ALP is, uh, is definitely on the far-right to right-wing, uh, centre-right, whatever. So, yeah, um, you know, that's just one example. Um, you know, another example that you may not have heard of in Afghanistan last year or the year before, there was an Australian FAS contingent who were flying a swastika um, over their Humvee uh, while in Afghanistan, you know. So, yeah, like anti-Muslim hatred is very rife in Australia. The You know, um, it gets stoked by, you know, legacy media, you know, people like John Laws. Um, living in Bankstown, it was kind of funny because, like, you know, we have news programs, like A Current Affair, which is kind of like a shock news uh, show. Uh, you know, and they did a, they did a whole, like, um, a whole segment on Bankstown as a no-go zone. I'm pretty sure you're familiar with that concept. The, oh, uh, yeah. That's a, that's a global yeah. right-wing term. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So you, so, yeah, so you uh, grew up, you grew up in a no-go zone then, right? Yeah. So that was the funny part. Was like, you know, they're they're like portraying Bankstown as this no-go zone, yet like, you know, I grew up in a predominantly like Anglo slash Indigenous community within Bankstown. So you know, we didn't get the memo, obviously. Um, <laughs> right, right. Um, and as far as Indigenous hatred, I mean. 
yes. Um, but I think uh, I think it's like most indigenous people in Australia are, you know, like their lineage comes from like one grandparent, sometimes not even that. Um, as you go like into the Northern Territory, into Arnhem Land, um, the people up there, you know, they're the ones you hear like um, you know slogans of treaty. Like they never, they never ceded their land, um, and they never gave up fighting the government. Um, you know, and as a result, they still have um, communities intact. But in the cities, like the term gets used as curry because most people. You know, their families uh, come out of what they call the stolen generation, which is like the Shane government took indigenous children away from their families. And, you know, they were raised by white families, uh, you know, who couldn't have children. Uh, you know, similar to like the Beat, Beat the Savage, Save the Child program in, in Canada and some parts of the US. Um, so while there is like anti indigenous, you know, kind of like stoking up, the indigenous people are only like 2.8% of the population and like, you know, the, the culture, um, you know, has been stripped straight out. Like that's why a lot of indigenous people, um, you know, they, um, you know, they can, uh, like they find kindred spirits with the American, uh, African-American populations because slavery did what, you know, colonialism did here, if that makes sense. Yeah, well, you're talking like destruction of culture. Yeah, so like even though there is like anti-indigenous sentiment, there's not a lot because there's not a lot of indigenous people left. Does that make sense? You know. No, I follow what you're saying, and I guess uh, to kind of pivot, I guess how does this uh, relate to your poetry? How does how did I well, let me back up? How did like uh, how did uh, like the leftist politics and um, start to influence your pop uh, poetry? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's a tricky question, uh, because, um, so yeah, like, I wanted to write from a purely, like, lumpen perspective, because, you know, um, I thought that there wasn't a lot of it around, and um, the stuff that is around glorifies the wrong things, you know, um, you know, because, like, you know, I I've seen people, like, glorify, like, so, in the old lit scene, I see people um, glorify drug use, you know, um, and it's a real particular way in which they do it, you know. It's always prescription drugs as well, um, which I thought was telling, you know. Yeah, there's a lot of Adderall in the alt lit scene. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, and, like, it just sounded fake to me. Like, you know... Um, they like there was no poems about being strung out for for example you know uh, you know um, yeah so I wanted to write like that sort of stuff like you know like stuff that someone who comes from that background would understand but also like tied into like it's not your fault because like one of the things that comes with a lumpen pro consciousness is that you're just not good enough, um, you know. Instead of, like, you know, social reproduction being that the trauma gets passed down from, like, children, uh, from parents to children, and then the children grow up 
have kids and then do it again, you know? Um, you know, so yeah, like that's what I was like aiming for was kind of like contextualizing that sort of stuff, not just, you know, like in the outlet, it would be like you would name check, you know, all these drugs and it had no real point to it, you know? So yeah, I guess like the violence, the drugs, you know, um, the abuse, um, like that sort of stuff that, you know, with a coherent sort of like contextualization for that stuff as well. Yeah, and I could see how like studying Bordeaux stuff would start to like inform that that way of thinking. But like, I guess like this is a good time to talk about like the online poetry thing because you're talking alt lit. So like, when did you like log on and start to find this stuff, and how did you come to find it? <laughs> Um, yeah, uh, so I started reading the vlogs, I think 2011, 2012, um, you know, most of the stuff had already been, like, underway by then, um, but, you know, like, reader of depressing books, uh, Vlogspot, uh, which was Talin's, um, uh, what was Sam Pink's one? It was something like the something to do with a crown. Um, I can't remember what his stuff was. Yeah, he had a blog spot. It was something to do with a crown. That's all I remember, a crown. You know? But I started reading those blogs. Um, Sam Pink definitely was an influence because um, he was writing about like the aimlessness of, you know, um, like urban life, I guess, you know, and I really um, gravitated toward that sort of, you know, um, the characters, like, the characters had no meaning in their lives, you know, um, they kind of just, like, went through, like, a gauntlet of pop culture and, like, you know, personal issues, you know, um, so, like, yeah, I mean, that was a big influence, um, yeah, but, yeah, so I... I started uh, reading those blogs and then I came across HTML Giant which started like I guess trying to provide a theory for this internet writing stuff um, you know and yeah HTML Giant it was HTML Giant was kind of like the main theoretical hub for alt lit I guess you could say you kind of started I think you know, we've talked and I think you started to move away from that kind of aesthetic, even though you might believe in some of the underlying values, like expressing mm-hmm. things in easy to understand type of terms. Yeah, um, I think that's just mainly because I can't deny. <laughs> uh, so um, I think it was like three women who were involved with Vault Lit, um, you know, wrote a uh like an op-ed about you know how all it was used uh you know to prey on teenage girls basically um and it's very it's a very convincing piece you know so yeah i have moved away from that sort of stuff simply because um you know like it serves to protect abusers rather than give the voiceless a voice if that makes sense you know like, the anti-elitism is aimed to, like, appeal to teenage girls, not necessarily to, you know, outsider people in general, you know? Yeah, and so, like, you've, you have, like, you've come to, I think, probably a type, a different type of aesthetic and a different, different view on, I guess, like, what 
sincerity or irony and all that stuff could could mean and what you want that want that to do oh yeah yeah (laughs) yeah well i mean that's the yeah that's the tricky part right because like i think we were talking about this before um like irony and sincerity are not used in like the dictionary definition way you know there seems to be like a double fake in each of them like you know like the sincerity seems to be like uh you know um like like a over ex- like over exclamation like you you know um like a real forceful kind of like um statement of uh of fact that's wrapped up in like knowing that irony exists you know so it's kind of like you're being ironic about being sincere and that's what makes it sincere and then the other way you know, you can be ironic, uh, you know, but like in a sincere way as well. You know, it's yeah, like this the more, weird double fake. Yeah, like the more ironic you are, the more sincere you're actually being. Right. Um, which is very confusing. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's very confusing, but it definitely is a thing I think I've observed too online. I mean, the most, the most, uh, I guess the most obvious place you see it is in a podcast like Chapo Trap House. I've like literally heard people like say of of uh, one of the co-hosts Felix that, you know, when he's being his most ironic is when something is actually the closest to him, like when it's something's affecting him the most is when he's being the most ironic. And it kind of seems like that same dynamic played out in alt lit except with sincerity. Yeah, yeah. Um yeah, cuz like to me sincere meant that you believed in something you know and i came to find like i came to find out that that's not the case like you know what i thought you know i thought that um you know i thought that um you know i thought that what talon was doing was that he was like his intention was sincerely like here's the shitty stuff that i've done in my life um yeah you know, but I really, want to kinda, yeah but i think i think you've said in the past that like really what he was doing is is weaponizing that kind of sincerity to like cover up or try and make ex- acceptable the, sh- right, like, the yeah. awful the awful things he did yeah um which was like a big thing for me because um you know like i was like oh you know like you know, this could be a way in which that I could, like, talk about my life, um, you know, and it wouldn't be, like, you know, it, it would just be a, like, you know, going back to that idea of, like, trying to understand, you know, how, like, how you are made by the environment, you know, and how society, like, impacts you, you know, and how, like, organizing society means, like, a whole lot more than people realize, you know, um, yeah, and then it turns out like, oh, you know, it's like, uh, it was all, you know, <laughs> it was all to sell books, you know. Um, yeah, they were, I mean, they were more interested in talking about drugs, and I think that's like apparent. Like, I recently reread Megan Boyle's um, the the book she wrote about being a Panda Express employee, and most of the stuff in there yeah. isn't about actually working; it's about you know doing drugs. Right. Right. Um, and you're Which interested think, in yeah, and you're interested in the the working part and the and the, I guess yeah the living part on like li- like living in this unequal society. 
Well, yeah, I mean, like this problem happened to me with daughter as well, you know. <laughs> um, like this idea that in Western art about making the everyday um, artistic, like through like painting, poetry, writing, like you elevate the everyday, uh, you know. Um, so that would mean like, you know, yeah, like your job, um, you know, uh, like cooking, like, you know, I mean, Japan has like a very long history of like that everyday sort of stuff, you know. Um, but yeah, like it, it happened the same with Dada. It's like when I started reading like Dada poets, it really wasn't about every day. It was, you know, about like breaking down linguistical, you know, uh, like breaking down grammar, you know, or it, it was very little to do with like how people lived, you know. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff can turn out to be more about like making, like, like, like you said, breaking down language and language itself rather than like life. Mm. Yeah, which I think, um, I think like that survives in someone like Tao Lin. Like, you know, when you look at, his writing style, you know, it's like a like a self-conscious style, um, you know, where meaning starts to break down. Like, you know, it's so, it's so hyper aware of itself, you know, that it, you know, it starts to, uh, you know, starts to fray at the edges. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I guess you mentioned that you were that for a time you did like auto fiction, and I guess like, how did you come to move away from auto fiction? just like a conflict of values, I guess, um, you know, because like, as much as I want like people to understand like how, you know, like how people like my family live and, you know, like how this sort of stuff affects someone, um, you know, it's also like, you know, when you're writing like, um, you know, like, so, in a, in a weird coincidence, uh, you know, um, I, you know, one of my good friends when I was a teenager, um, we used to, like, do a lot of graffiti, um, you know, and he was killed, uh, he got hit by a train, uh, you know, and um, he, like, you know, uh, there's a, a rapper from Sweden um, called Promo, he did a song called These Walls Don't Lie where he actually references my friend. Um, you know, so I started, like, writing about that um, specific event. Um, you know, it was one of the first things I ever wrote in that autofiction style. Um, you know, and then, like, when I went back over it, I didn't like what I had written because I had written something from my perspective that didn't take into account his family and, you know, um, like, other people who, who knew him as well, you know. So, I mean, like, when there's a lot of, like, pain and a lot of, like, violence and a lot of, like, these kind of structural social problems, you don't want to end up hurting the people that you're writing about. And, you know, like, I think it's, like, less um, problematic when you're not, like, you're writing and you're not earning money off it. But, you know, like, I didn't want to get into a situation where I was writing, like, this autofiction, and then, you know, um, like, the literati in Australia was latching onto it because it was exciting, you know. It was something different. 
you know, and then like exploiting off, you know, friends that I had and, you know, family members that I, you know, they're still in it, you know. Um, so yeah, that's how I came to like chuck the auto fiction project uh, all together, you know. Yeah, and that, that kind of auto fiction stuff goes hand in hand with the abuse it enables. You know, one of the first things, one of the first like major red flags I had while reading Tao Lin all these years ago was basically every book was about a different girlfriend. It was basically like he just broke up with his girlfriend and got a new one so he could write a new book. Yeah. Well, I mean, it also reminds me of the beats, you know, like, um, you know, like jazz was like intertwined with like the beat sort of like lifestyle, you know, um, you know, and just like, you know, how they were using like black culture to, you know, uh, to profit off, you know, um, I doubt they, you know, I doubt they credited anyone, you know, with the different, you know, theories that they ended up with. Yeah. And to tie this to a conversation I just had with um, Jordan Davis, he points out that he pointed out that Allen Ginsberg was like the best poetry salesperson he's seen since uh. until, until Rupee basically. And I mean, that's what it really feels like when you read, these works of auto fiction or auto theory, a lot of it feels like uh, salesmanship. I guess, I guess like what we're ultimately getting to is it's hard to, it's hard to do that kind of auto fiction type thing or the kind of celebrity of someone like Ginsburg, because, you know, it is, it, it is such total uh, immer immersion within, within capitalism. It's not at that point, you're not opposing it. You're just one of the massive cogs in capitalism generating profit. And I guess, like, that gets to, you know, like, what Paint Bucket or what this podcast tries to do, which is, you know, seize the means of production so that we aren't necessarily just cogs in that system to the extent that we can, even though, you know, we still, we still live in a society. Right, right. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, but I mean, like, that's, I guess that's uh, one of the, one of the big points of contention uh, is that, you know, that it's like very easy to change these institutions um, in terms of, you know, uh, basically all an institution is, is like the everyday verbs of a person's job, you know? Um, yeah, so like Poetry Foundation, for example, you know, it doesn't exist without the secretaries, the readers, you know, like web developers, like all that sort of stuff, you know? Um, you know, and yeah, it's like really easy to change that sort of stuff um, if, you know, everyone's committed, right? Uh, which I think, you know, uh, yeah, which I hope is what, you know, what can be demonstrated with this sort of stuff. Um, you know, but yeah, um, I'm not sure if... Uh, you know, I, I'm not sure if like not earning money on it is uh, also like not exploitation. If that makes sense, you know. Um, no, it's it's still exploitation for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, so this is like a really difficult issue <laughs> with that. But I mean, yeah, like I think you know the stuff that you've been talking about on this podcast, like you know, the rattle guys, you know, and their connection to like. Um, you know, landlords and stuff like that, you know, um, 
you know, like just like that stuff in general, like it, it shows like how far the, you know, the exploitation of like um, cultural workers, I guess you would call them, like goes, you know. Yeah, no, yeah, no, and I guess you, in terms of changing an institution like poetry to the extent that that's possible, it, it, the, the, the trouble with that too is poetry is a foundation with a multi-million, do- multi-million dollar endowment. So even if we manage to say, get everyone fired at Poetry Magazine, the, the endowment will still continue to earn interest year after year and continue on like the zombie capital that it is. Right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I guess like, is what's like what's the Australian publishing scene like? If I could just ask that real quick. Um, it's very much uh, like you would expect. It's very much a um, you know, old voice club. Um, you know, I think uh, there's a sociologist called um, Clayton Childress. Um, and he did a book, I forget what it's called, but he did a book doing a production analysis on literature in New York. And um, in that book, he kind of like does interviews with like different agents. And the agents are fairly upfront. They say like, what usually we choose to, you know, to publish is stuff that relates to us. Like, you know, so that's why there's a lot of novels about being in your 20s in Brooklyn, because nearly every, you know, uh, literary agent in New York like has that experience, you know. So when they read a book about it, yeah, like take you know takes them back, you know. Uh, and I think that's very true of the Australian scene as well. Like the agents are a particular type of people, uh, and they chain like they choose books that they relate to. Um, so you often get like, you know, like the big L literature section, right? We get like stuff that's like from America, you know, France, like all that sort of stuff. But the actual Australian stuff, I would say, is pretty middle brow, on purpose. Yeah, that makes sense uh, based on what we were talking about earlier. That it just seems like the middle and upper middle classes are trying to manufacture their own Australian culture to, you know, write about mm-hmm. in think pieces and whatever the Australian equivalent of the New Yorker is. Yeah. Um, and I think Australia is like weird in that sense because it is both tied to the colonialist project and trying, you know, trying to disconnect as well. Um, you know, uh, and what I mean by that is, you know, if you read, um, you know, Banjo Patterson, the man from Snowy River, you get a, like a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of anti-indigenous sentiments, you know, um, you know, yeah. So, like, in in this weird way, they're you know, I think they're trying to, um, like, manufacture the Australian culture, but also um, play down the colonialist history of Australian literature. You know, because um, up until like World War Two, you know, Australia was basically like an extension of England. You know, um. And so if you wanted to make it big, you made it big in England, you know. Um, and then, like, after the World Wars, uh, we pivoted to America. Um, precisely because we felt betrayed by 
the British, uh, you know, um, officers, you know, during during the wars, you know, and I think that's also like caused, you know, a lot of anxiety um, because you get like a lot of, um, I would say, like disconnected literature, like you know, um, like you get things like you know, you get books like this one book I'm thinking about, you know, it's about like a Lebanese family. And it's written by a Lebanese guy. Uh, you know, but it's like totally divorced from like the um the cultural problems that came with, you know, uh with Lebanese immigration. Like I don't know if people know this, but Australia had a literal white uh white immigration policy till nineteen seventy four. Um so up until nineteen seventy four, if you weren't white and European, you couldn't get into the country. Um, in nineteen seventy four, uh, and it was originally revoked for Vietnamese um, people trying to escape, um, you know, the war zone in South Vietnam. Um, yeah, but the yeah the Lebanese came uh, like way after. Like I think the civil war was in the nineties, um, or at least it ended in the nineties. But Lebanese like have never been considered white in Australia. Um, Persians are edge case. Um, but definitely not Lebanese. Like if you speak Arabic, you know they call you a wog, which is, I guess, a term that's not common in America. I've never heard it. Yeah, it's a British term. The British used it. Um, you know, I think it came out of gollywog, uh, which was a derogatory term for you know Caribbean or West Indian migrants in Britain. Uh, but if you're like, I mean, Greeks, for example, aren't accepted Greece, as white. Greeks Australia. aren't white in Australia. Um, yeah, Greeks, Italian. Uh, my mom, <laughs> some guys were harassing my, uh, my, like my uncles when they were kids. And my mom came out of the house to like tell them off and she got hit in the face with a brick. They threw a brick at her. Um, so were they, were your uncles Greek? No, no. They thought because my family were dark, they thought they were Italians. You know. <laughs> oh, I see what you're saying. I thought I I wasn't sure what was happening there. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. Like, you know. So I mean, like, now my mom gets you know Turkish or um, you know Italian. Like, you know, she still looks kind of that, you know, vaguely Mediterranean. Um, but yeah, like that's the treatment that Italians first got when they came over to Australia. Like you know, and they that were was abused. fairly recent. You're saying, yeah, yeah, it was very, very recent. Um, even though that they were considered um, European, you know, um, yeah. they definitely weren't accepted as part of like the Anglo. I mean, for example, you know, um, the the old troubles, you know, um, the uh, Catholic versus Protestant. Um, you know, kind of like hatred was alive and well in Australia up until like the 50s, for example. So even Irish weren't considered like white Australian, if that makes sense. No, that that makes sense. Um, like, you know, I, I think Edward Said has talked about this like with respect to Greeks is, you know, the, the boundaries of who mm. is European and white are constantly contested. And it kind of makes sense that a settler colonial state like Australia would be particularly um, <laughs> racist about who is actually white. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. So, like, the term wog can refer to a Greek, a Croatian, uh, a Serbian, um, 
you know, a Lebanese person, an Afghan, you know, like it's a catch-all for non-Anglo, <laughs> you know. It's a, yeah, it's a strange, um, now that I think about it, yeah, it must sound strange too, because America has a totally different yeah, it's, kind of it's, like system. It's quite different over here in America where I think, and I think the Lebanese thing in America is a bit different. Cause I think if I'm not, my memory serves a lot of the Lebanese immigrants initially might've been Christian Lebanese folks. So they, yeah, they would be, yeah, they would be coded as white, but if you're having uh, Muslim immigrants to Australia, Muslim Lebanese immigrants to Australia, especially given the Islamophobia of, of Australia, it makes sense that mm-hmm. they would have their white would not be considered white. And I think, you know, like, in case people forgot, you know, like the Christ Christchurch shooter was was an Australian guy. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, like, it's interesting <laughs> because looking at the Australian example tells you like how manufactured all this stuff is. You know. Um, so in a in Australia, um, oh, before I go into that, I just want to say like any book by a Lebanese person that talks about growing up as Lebanese in Australia that doesn't reference, like, Cronulla riots and, like, that sort of thing. Like, there's something fishy going on. Is You know, that's what I was kind of getting at. Um, but, yeah, like, in Australia, it's, like, very manufactured because we have a woman called uh, Pauline Hansen, um, you know. And you can literally, like, YouTube Pauline Hansen maiden, you know, speech 93, 94, and you will hear her talk about Asian immigration and how, you know, we were going to be swamped by Asians, you know. And at the time, Vietnamese people were considered gang, like gang members because, you know, we had, you know, uh, 5T, you know, which was like a predominant Lebanese uh, gang at the time. You know, but then like a, a Asian triads, like Big Circle and stuff like that would be like folded into like watching, like they were folded into Vietnamese as well, you know. But the exact same speech that she gave in 93, she gave again when she was re-elected, I think in 2008. Uh, but this time she uses Muslim immigration, not Asian immigration. You know, so when you look at those two uh, speeches, you, you know, you get a sense of how, just how artificial this like stuff is, really is, you know. Um, yeah, and I, I think it's a good spot to mention too, like Australia in terms of Asian immigration, like there's a literal like offshore Australian detention camp for folks trying to migrate to mm-hmm. Australia over the seas from various South Asian countries. Right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, you know, protesting when I was in school over, you know, um, the, you know, the Sri Lankan civil war and Tamils coming to Australia and, you know, the government declared that Tamils were not, you know, they weren't refugees and sent them back. Um, what the fallout from that is, I don't know. I don't know what, you know, like I know there's camps uh, in Sri Lanka for Tamils, uh, you know, um, seems like a bad situation, you know. But yeah, um, Nauru, uh, it, this is kind of what I used to, um, like I always, uh, you know, I hear a lot of white nationalists in, a, in America praise the Australian system. I think even Donald Trump said he wants to implement a point system like Australia has, you know. Um, and it's like a white Australia policy by de facto. Basically, you know, uh, you're given points, you know. So, like, 
you know, they, they take you to an offshore detention center because as long as you're not on Australian soil, you don't get Australian rights. Um, you know, because if you, you know, it used to be that if you came as a refugee and landed in Australia, we had to abide by the human rights, you know. Um, uh, what was the Human Rights Act after World War II? You know, the Human Rights Commission, you know, we, we had to abide by the rules, you know. So they got around that by basically buying an island off Papua New Guinea and making the detention center there. Uh, but yeah, it's real bad. Like people, you know, women are raped and they're not given adequate psychological treatment. Um, people dying all the time, just the conditions are very, very bad. Um, and a part of the reason why is because like, we used to have a place called Woomera Detention Center and a bunch of like activists like literally like uh you know ran down the gates and like freed everyone you know so they didn't want that happening again either you know um but yeah it's very very bad and um basically the point system works as like if you have a skill that's in skill shortage in Australia you get a point if you're European you get a point uh i have known people who were Nepalese and penalized for being Nepalese, for example. Um, so yeah, like that's, they, sorry, that's yeah, really like worrying. Facto. That's really worrying right. to hear that, that that's like how the Australian system works. Because I've literally heard American liberals, and if you're wondering who, I was listening to the Weeds podcast by Vox Media and Matt Iglesias <laughs> right. and Ezra Klein, and I believe uh, well, I won't name the mm-hmm. third host because I'm forgetting who the third was, but they were basically like musing, like Oh, what if we what if we had a point what if we had a point system and like a test for immigrants coming in and like oh if you speak mm. if you if you do a job we need you get a point and if you do if you speak English you get a point and I think what I'm getting at here is that mm. kind of Australian model you're talking about is something that not even just the far right in the U.S. is considering but like people who would the be liberal. considered yeah like Obama liberals are like oh this is a good idea. Mm. Well, I mean that makes sense to me because you know. Um... Your, you know, uh, Obama slash Hillary Clinton slash, you know, that sort of like Democrat would be in our Liberal Party, like they, you know, so, and Liberal Party is the prime, like one of the primary uh, architects. Yeah, of just our again, system. the li- the Liberal Party for you is like the center right to far right party. Yeah, yeah. You have um, some like far right parties too, but we don't really need to go into that. Yeah, One Nation, uh, uh, Family First. Uh, yeah, we, we have a lot of far right. We even have far right. Uh, there's a conservative party um, that's in coalition with the AL, uh, the uh, NLP. Uh, you know, and their leader, Cory Bonani, uh, you know, I don't know if you're aware of this, but the alt-right in Australia are called Dingoes. I mean... If I had to, if if you had to like force me to guess what I would call the Australian all <laughs> right, that's what I would have guessed. But no, I didn't know that. <laughs> right, right. Or well, Dingo Twitter, you know. Yeah, uh, he went on like he's done numerous appearances on all right Australian all right podcasts, you know. Um, so it shows you where he's, you know, where his politics is. But I mean, he he sits in coalition with the Australian Liberal Party. Yeah, I mean that's what a what a shock. Imagine my shock, as a, a prominent right winger <laughs> would say. But, right, uh, right. <laughs> so it makes sense to me that you know a technocratic Democrat 
would be in favor of this um, because you know another thing that I also um, you know like kind of see in America is that like liberals are often the most racist exactly the same as in Australia like because you know as soon as you get that NIMBY crowd riled up you know um, they will like you know they will like protest against immigration um, there have been a couple of cases in Australia where you know, country towns that need workforces have, like, protest, like, almost rioted over, you know, the government wanting to bring in, um, you know, recent migrants to work there, you know. Oh, I remember what I was going to ask. Um, so it seems like Australia has, like, a pretty right-wing culture, and something that happens in America a lot is the, the, the right, the Republicans and everyone to the right of them loves to complain that America has a liberal culture. So, like, is th- does that same thing happen in Australia? Is there a sense that Australia has a liberal culture and that, you know, you're just, like, some kind of... Da- uh, yeah. Um, exactly the same. And the connection is the Murdoch media. Um, oh, that's right. Rif- you guys have a bunch of Murdoch papers over there. Yeah, Rupert Murdoch, Australian by birth, and he perfected the, uh, you know, the kind of, like, Fox News... Um, you know, rhetoric in Australia, um, then England, and then finally in America. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the Murdoch papers always, you know, um, you know, they don't call liberal, um, you know, like it's usually like leftist, um, you know, because, you know, the, the reference would be the Australian Labour Party. Um, and the Australian Labour Party, even the right wing of the Australian Labour Party is trading, you know, um, so yeah, instead of attacking, attack, you know, you're, uh, you know, you're a socialist or, you know, um, you're like, you know, a lefty loony, you know, like words like that, you know? Um, yeah. well, so how is like the leftist poetry scene in Australia? Non-existent. Um, I mean, that's my read of it too. It seems like the left in Australia is pretty, uh, pretty downtrodden. Yeah, um, well, a big part of that, as I said, is because of the Labour Party. Um, You know, what's going on in America with Bernie and stuff like that, I could see, like, a Labour-esque realignment within the Democratic Party. Um, You know, but, um, yeah, so in Australia, like, you know, uh, we have, like, a heap of Bernie Sanders, you know, like, it's not an uncommon position uh to hold you know um so well, there's like result... well what really worries me about that in a state like australia is like is that really tied up with say like closing the borders like perhaps you could say an anti-woke australian left yeah uh, well i think it's like uh i mean this is why i warn americans you know especially also with healthcare. um I've heard people say they wanted Australian-style healthcare, um, and I would warn people uh, to to look into Australian healthcare uh, because you know, like Medicare uh, basically like covers most of your um, your medical bills, you know, emergency stuff like that. But what gets defined as cosmetic, therefore voluntary, um, you know, surgery is very loose. A lot of people, you know, who need, like, surgery can't get it because it's considered cosmetic. 
and also like you know dentistry and psychology the lobbies have like consistently uh you know lobbied against become like coming under medicare umbrella you know so like and they're the two biggest issues facing uh you know the working slash lumpen um population in Australia. yeah sorry. i was gonna say it seems like too um there's not much accounting for race at all in australian politics and it seems like that's mm-hmm. probably a prerequisite for any for a perhaps a stronger leftist movement there. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I mean, the situation's so bad. Like you know, um, you know, like my grandmother was part of the stolen generation, um, but I don't claim any tribal allegiances because you know I don't know. Like we just don't like my grandmother's uh, birth certificate was you know quote unquote lost, um, you know and and things are so bad in the indigenous community, um, you know that, you know there's a lot of like suspicion even amongst Kuri people themselves you know, um, and there's also like the uh, you know I mean it's getting really bad, um, you know so to give an example how bad it's got. Uh, there's a guy uh, named Mark Latham who used to be the leader of the Australian Labour Party. Um, he ran for election with One Nation in this recent uh, election because uh, we just had our national elections. Um, and, you know, his big platform was, you know, I am going to DNA test uh, everyone who claims Aboriginal uh, of Torres Strait Island uh, heritage to make sure that there's no one scamming the system, you know, because Indigenous people are afforded some, you know, social welfare, uh, you know, not as much as they would need, but some, you know. And the ridiculousness of that notion is just like we're getting into like weird eugenic sort of territory with that, but also it's like ridiculous because you got people like me who under Latham's, um, you know, under Latham's, you know, policy, I would pass a DNA test because I have one grandparent. Um, but there are a lot of people who live in Aboriginal communities, um, you know, who identify as Aboriginal, uh, but who are, you know, like white and they are blonde and have blue eyes, you know, uh, and they're like Indigenous um status should not be questioned, um, you know, because they've lived in Aboriginal communities and they're facing all the same challenges as someone, you know, um, you know, with, with darker skin than me, you know. Um, yeah, so that's kind of how bad it's gotten with, like, you know, racial politics, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, um, because, I mean... Oh, no, go well, on. Well, it's those, um, you know, it's those, like, light-skinned uh, curries, which are causing the problems, right? Because, you know, to be original, you have to be non-white, you know. Um, and it's part of, like, the history of the genocide, you know. Um, like, that's been one of the one of the plans. That's what the stolen generation was about, you know. Um, they, you know, they set the parameters of what is and isn't, um, you know, and then they like change, you know, change the definition. So fewer and fewer people, 
uh, you know, can claim that, you know, that heritage and continue that, you know, whatever's left of that culture. Oh, right. And that, that reminds me too, like of why I say Elizabeth Warren, just not addressing mm-hmm. that first off doing the DNA test and being like, yes, I am indigenous was so problematic. And then also just the continual mm-hmm. denials of it are so, so, so glaringly, like so glaringly awful because it is a inherently right wing thing to do. And also the, the birth certificate thing really reminds me of what happened in the UK recently with the Windrush generation and how, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah, and how the British government was just like, oh, well, we, we lost those papers. We have no way to know who's a citizen and who's not. I guess it's time to deport you. Yeah, but the Windrush situation, yeah, that was really bad. I mean, what worries me is the rise of um, race and IQ in conjunction with these eugenic policies, you know. Um, it just boggles my mind that we can live in a world post-World War II where we have, like, concentration camps along the Mexican border, and we have, like, you know, uh, indigenous eugenic programs, you know, being proposed in Australia. Like, like you know, I, yeah, it just boggles my mind, you know, <laughs> that yeah. people can, uh, can justify these situations, you know. Like, we've seen this stuff before, you know. Yeah, and I think it's really important to realize, like, because Australia is that kind of peripheral colonial state, and well, like we've already discussed, a mm-hmm. lot of the policies in Australia, like the, the the immigration policies, are starting to be discussed in America by like liberals. And once Australia starts to normalize those policies, I think we could see that kind of stuff um, circulating back to the United States once they've sort of quote unquote been proven in a country like Australia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, from understand the border centers like the detention centers on the border are worse than the one in Nauru um, and I think that's because much to America's credit uh, you know people got in there you know um, yeah. there's a media blackout in Nauru like no one really knows the extent of abuses that are going on there and I think that makes it harder to organize against as well um, you know because like to average Australian they wouldn't even know where Nauru is you know, um, like, you know, the, the racial politics of Australia are, are so bad that, you know, if you ask an average Australian, like, who is your neighbor? Like, what country are, are you closest to? They would say New Zealand. But the closest country to Australia is Indonesia. and just happens to be the largest uh, Muslim country in the world as well, you know. So, like, yeah. Um, we're totally like slip around. Um, so yeah, like Nauru's just this like non-existent place in their minds, you know? Yeah. And I mean, there's always the question of like, what are the liberals actually going to do about it? And it seems like maybe make the point system more fair would probably be their answer in Australia. Uh, yeah. Well, it's because Australia has such a, um, strong labor history. Um, you know, it's all about, uh, like, it's all set in, like, labor terms, you know? And I guess it's a good example of, um, for Americans, of, like, what to avoid. Like, if you want to do an actual, like, leftist movement that focuses on, like, labor and stuff like that, um, you've got to be aware of how, like, labor politics can be twisted against, like, left principles. Um, you know, because it can very easily happen. 
and Australia is a great example of that, you know. So, I mean, they're, they're, no one in Australia would say that there's not anything wrong with the immigration system, you know, um, because what they would say is, oh, well, you know, we're protecting Australian workers by not, you know, um, not taking, like, you know, X amount of unskilled workers, you know, and then we're helping the industries that need, you know, like medicine or, you know, engineering or whatever. We're helping these industries by bringing them in. So for both, like, that's what I'm talking about. Like, for the Labour government, it's a win-win, and for the Liberal government, it's a win-win. The Liberals get to keep out anyone non-white, non-European, you know, or, or as much as they can, you know, uh, without appearing to be, like, totally white nationalists, you know. And, uh, the, you know, the Labour um, politicians get to, you know, go back to the unions and, uh, you know, grandstand about how they're protecting Australian you know, industries.